Chapter 14, Part 2 of More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Hand. More Love to Thee, The Life and Letters of Elizabeth Prentice by George Prentice. Chapter 14, Part 2 the moody and sanguine meetings her interest in them mr moody publication of griselda goes to the centennial at dorset again her bible reading a moody meeting convert visit to montreal publication of the home at greylock her theory of a happy home marrying for love her sympathy with young mothers letters the early months of 1876 were very busily spent in painting pictures for friends, in attendance upon Mr. Moody's memorable services at the Hippodrome, and in writing a book for young mothers. Before going to Dorset for the summer, she passed a week at Philadelphia visiting the Centennial Exhibition. Her letters during the winter and spring of this year relate chiefly to these topics. To a Christian Friend February 22nd, 1876. You gave me a good deal of a chill by your long silence, and I find it a little hard to be taken up and dropped and then taken up. Still, almost everybody has these fitful ways, and very likely I myself among that number. Your little boy must take a world of time and open a new world of thought and feeling. But don't spoil him. The best child can be made hateful by mismanagement. I am trying to write a book for mothers and find it a discouraging work, because I find, on scrutiny, such awfully radical defects among them. And yet such a book would have helped me in my youthful days. You ask if I have been to hear Moody. Yes, I have, and am deeply interested in him and his work. Yesterday afternoon he had a meeting for Christian workers in which his sound common sense created great merriment. Some objected to this, but I liked it because it was so genuine, and, to my mind, not unchristlike. So many fancy religion and a long face synonymous. How stupid it is. I wonder they don't object to the sun for shining. I am glad you think Urbane may be useful, for I hear little from it. Junia's story is true as far as the laudanum and the blindness go. It happened years ago. I do not know what religious effect it had. As to the friend of whom you speak, she would not love you as you say she does if her case was hopeless. At least I don't think so. I am oppressed with the case of one who wants me to help him to Christ, while unwilling to confide to me his difficulties. How little they know how we care for their souls. To Mrs. George Payson, February 28, 1876. I have been trying to do more than any mortal can and now must stop to take breath and write to you. In the first place, M's illness cut out three months. Then fitting up G's room at Princeton took a large part of the next three. Then ever so many people wanted me to paint them pictures. Then I began a book. Then Moody and Sankey appeared, and I wanted to hear them, and was needed to work in cooperation with them. I don't know how you feel about Moody, but I am in full sympathy with him. And last Friday, the testimony of four of the cured gin pigs, their own language, was the most instructive, interesting language I ever heard from human lips. 
in talking to those he has drawn into the inquiry rooms i find the most bitterly wretched ones are backsliders they are not without hope and expect to be saved at last but they have been trying what the world could do for them and found it a failure their anguish was harrowing one after another tried to help them and gave up in despair i had a vase given me at christmas somewhat like yours but a trifle larger and shaped like a fish the flowers never fell out but once i had two little tables given me on which to set my majolica vases with india rubber plants which will grow where nothing else will also a desk and a bookcase and two splendid specimens of grass which grew in california that had been bleached to a creamy white they are more beautiful than pampa or even feather grass a is driven to death about a fair for the young women's christian association i have given it a german tragedy which i translated a few years ago they expect to make one thousand six hundred dollars on it but randolph says if they make half that they may thank their stars i've spent all of my evenings of late in revising it and it goes to the printers today george is going to deliver a literary lecture for the same object this evening this being the age of obedient parents no i never saw and never painted any window screens the best things i have done are trailing arbutus and apple blossoms a invited me to do apple blossoms for her and said she should have to own that i had more artistic power than herself i don't agree with her but it is a matter of no consequence anyhow it is a shame for you to buy little lou i meant to send you one and thought i had done so the bright speeches are mostly genuine made by eddie hopkins and ned and charlie p how came you to have blooming hepaticus it is outrageous my plants do better this winter than ever before i have had hyacinths in bloom and a plant given me covered with red berries has held its own it hangs in a glass basket the boys gave me and has a white dove brooding over it let me inform you that i have lost my mind a friend dined with us on sunday and i asked him when i saw him last why yesterday he said when i met you at randolph's by appointment there i must stop and go to work on one of my numerous irons the german tragedy referred to fell into her hands in the spring of eighteen sixty nine and her letters written at the time showed how it delighted her it is indeed a literary gem the work of its author baron munch bellenhausen for frederick holm is a pseudonym are much less known in this country than they deserve to be he is one of the most gifted of the minor poets of germany a master of vivid style and of impressive varied and beautiful thought griselda first appeared at vienna in eighteen thirty five it was enthusiastically received and soon passed through several editions the scene of the poem is laid in wales in the days of king arthur the plot is very simple percival count of wales who had married griselda the daughter of a charcoal burner appears at court on occasion of a great festival in the course of which he is challenged by ginevra the queen to give an account of griselda and to tell how he came to wed her he readily consents to do so but has hardly begun when the queen and the ladies of the court by their mocking air and questions provoke him to such anger that swords are at length drawn between him and sir lancelot a friend of the queen and only the sudden interposition of the king prevents a bloody conflict the feud ends in a wager by which it is agreed that if griselda's love to percival endure certain tests the queen shall kneel to her otherwise percival shall kneel to the queen the tests are applied and the young wife's love although perplexed and tortured in the extreme 
triumphantly endures them all. The character of Griselda, as maiden, daughter, wife, mother, and woman, is wrought with exquisite skill, and betokens in the author rare delicacy and nobility of sentiment, as well as deep knowledge of the human heart. The following extract gives a part of Percival's description of Griselda. Percival, plague take these women's tongues. Ginevra, to her party, control your wit and mirth, compose your faces, that longer yet this pastime may amuse us. Now, Percival, proceed. Percival, what was I saying? I have it now. Beside the brook she stood, her dusky hair hung rippling round her face, and perched upon her shoulders sat a dove. Right home-like sat she there, her wings scarce moving. Now suddenly she stoops, I mean the maiden, down to the spring, and lets her little feet sink in its waters, while her colored skirt covered with care what they did not conceal. And I within the shadow of the trees inly admired her graceful modesty. And as she sat and gazed into the brook, plashing and sporting with her snow-white feet, she thought not of the olden times, when girls pleased to behold their faces smiling back from the smooth water, used it as their mirror by which to deck themselves and plait their hair. But like a child she sat with droll grimaces, delighted when the brook gave back to her her own distorted charms. So then I said, conceited is she not. Kenneth, the charming child. Eleanor, what is a collier's child to you? By heaven, don't make me fancy that you know her, sir. Percival, and now resounding through the mountain far, from the church tower rang forth the vesper bell, and she grew grave and still, and shaking quickly from off her face the hair that fell around it, she cast a thoughtful and angelic glance upward, where clouds had caught the evening red. And her lips gently moved with whispered words, as rose leaves tremble when the soft winds breathe. Oh, she is saintly, flashed it through my soul. She is marking on her brow the holy cross, lifted her face, bright with the sunset's flush, while holy longing and devotion's glow moistened her eye and hung like glory round her. Then to her breast the little dove she clasped, embraced, caressed it, kissed its snow-white wings, and laughed when with its rose-red bill it pecked, as if with longing for her fresh young lips. How she'd caress it, I said to myself, were this her child, the offspring of her love. And now a voice resounded through the woods, and cried, Griselda, cried it, come, Griselda, while she, the distant voice's sound distinguished, sprang quickly up, and scarcely lingering her feet to dry, ran up the dewy bank, with lightning speed, her dove in circles o'er her, till in the dusky thicket disappeared for me the last edge of her fluttering robe. Obedient is she, I said to myself, and many things revolving turned I home. Ginevra, by heaven, you tell your tale so charmingly, and with such warmth and truth to life, the hearer out of your words can shape a human form. Why, I can see this loveliest of maidens sit by the brookside making her grimaces. They are right pretty faces, spite of coal-smut. Is it not so, Sir Percival? Mrs. Prentice's translation is both spirited and faithful, faithful in following even the irregularities of meter which mark the original. It won the praise and admiration of some of the most anticipated judges in the country. The following extract from a letter of the late Reverend Henry W. Bellows, D.D., may serve as an instance. 
I read through it at one sitting and enjoyed it exceedingly. What a lovely, pure, and exalting story it is. I confess that I prefer it to Tennyson's recent dramas, or to any of the plays upon the same or kindred themes that have lately appeared from Leighton and others. The translation is melodious, easy, natural, and hardly bears any marks of the fetters of a tongue foreign to its author. How admirable must have been the knowledge of German and the skill in English of the translator. To Mrs. Condict, New York, May 2, 1876. I do not know, but I have been on too much of a drive all winter, for besides writing my book I have been painting pictures for friends, and am now at work on some wild roses for Mrs. D.'s golden wedding next Monday, and yesterday I wrote her some verses for the occasion. The work at the Hippodrome took a great deal of my time, and there is a poor homeless fellow now at work in my garden, whom it was my privilege to lead to Christ there, and who touched me not a little this morning by bringing me three plants out of his scanty earnings. He has connected himself with our mission and has made friends there. I do not know what Faber says about the silence of Christ, but I know that as far as our own consciousness goes, he often answers never a word, and that the grieved and disappointed heart must cling to him more firmly than ever at such times. We live in a mystery, and shall never be satisfied till we see him as he is. I am enjoying a great deal in a great many ways, but I am afraid I should run if the gates open. If I go to the centennial, it will be to please some of the family, not myself. You ask about my book. It is sort of a story. Had to be to get read. I could finish it in two weeks if needful. When I wrote it, no mortal knows. I should say that about all I had done this winter was hold on to my Bible reading, paint, and work in the revival. I have so few interruptions compared with my previous life that I hardly have learned to adjust myself to them. To Miss E. A. Warner, Philadelphia, May thirtieth, 1876. We came here on a hospitable invitation to spend a week in the Centennial Grounds, and yesterday passed several hours in wandering about, bewildered and amazed at the hosts of things we saw, and the host we didn't see. We found ourselves totally ignorant of Norway, for instance, whose contributions are full of artistic grace and beauty, and I suppose we shall go on making similar discoveries about other nations. As to the 32 art galleries, we have only glanced at them. What interested me most was groups of Norwegians, Lapps, and other Northerners, so lifelike that they were repeatedly addressed by visitors. Wonderful reproductions. The extent of this exhibition is simply beyond description. The only way to get any conception of it is to make a railroad circuit of the grounds. I have had a very busy winter, held a Bible reading once a week, written a book, painted lots of pictures to give away, and really need rest. Only I hate rest. We find out where our hearts really are when we get these fancied invitations homeward. I look upon Christians who are, at such times, reluctant to go with unfeigned amazement. The spectacle, too often seen, of shrinking from the presence of Christ is one I cannot begin to understand. I should think it would have been a terrible disappointment to you to get so far on and then have to come back, but we can be made willing for anything. I am glad you liked Griselda. I knew you would. The extreme heat and her unusually enfeebled state rendered the summer a very trying one, but its discomfort was in a measure relieved by the extraordinary loveliness of the Dorset scenery of this season. There was much in this scenery to remind her of Chateau d'Aux, where she had passed such happy weeks in the summer and autumn of 1858. If not marked by any very grand features, it is pleasing in the highest degree. 
In certain states of the atmosphere, the entire landscape, Mount Equinox, Sunset Mountain, Owl's Head, Green Peak, together with the intervening hills and the whole valley, becomes transfigured with ever-varying forms of light and shade. At such times, she thought it unsurpassed by anything of the kind she had ever witnessed, even in Switzerland. The finest parts of this enchanting scene were the play of the cloud shadows, running like wild horses across the mountains, and the wonderful sunsets, and both were in full view from the windows of her den. Her eyes never grew weary of feasting upon them. The cloud shadows in particular are much admired by all lovers of nature. To Mrs. George Payson, Cowanin Fells, July 8, 1876 We have been here for four weeks and ought to have been here six, for I cannot bear heat. It takes all the life out of me. Last night, when I went up to my room to go to bed, the thermometer was 90 degrees. Are you not going to the centennial? George and I went on first and stayed at Dr. Kirkbride's. They were as kind as possible, and we all enjoyed a great deal. What interested me most were wonderful life-like figures. Some said wax, but they were no more wax than you are, of Laplanders, Swedes, and Norwegians, dressed in clothes that had been worn by real peasants and done by an artistic hand. Next to these came the Japanese department, amazing bronzes, amazing screens, $1,000 a pair, embroidered exquisitely, lovely flowers painted on lovely vases, etc., 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 ad infinitum. The Norwegian jewelry was also a surprise and delight. I don't care for jewelry generally, but these silvery, lace-like creations took me by storm. Among other pretty things were lots of English bedrooms, exquisitely furnished and enormously expensive. The horticultural department was very poor, except the rhododendrons, which drove me crazy. I only took a chair twice. You pay 60 cents an hour for one with a man to propel it, but can have one for three hours and make your husband, or wife, wheel you. You do not pay entrance fee for children going in your arms, and I saw boys of eight or nine lugged in by their fathers and mothers. We think everybody should go who can afford it. Several countries had not opened when we were there, Turkey and Spain, for instance, and if Switzerland was ready, we did not see it. The more I think of the groups I spoke of, the more I am lost in admiration. A young mother kneeling over a little dead baby and the stern grief of the strong old grandfather brought a lump into my throat. The young father was not capable of such grief as theirs and sat by looking subdued and tender, but nothing more. The artist must be a great student of human nature. I went every day to study these domestic groups. At first, they did not attract the crowd but later it was next to impossible to get at them. Everyone was taken from life, and you see the grime on their knuckles. Almost every face expressed strong and agreeable character. There were very few good and great many had pictures. Of statuary, the forced prayer was very popular. The child had his hands folded, but is in anything but a saintly temper, and two tears are on his cheeks. I should like to own it. If I had had any money to spare, I should have bought something from Japan and something from Denmark. I do not think anyone can realize, who has not been there, what an education such an exposition is. China's inferiority to Japan I knew nothing about. A goes out sketching every day. The other day I found her painting a white flower which she said she got from the lawn. It was something like a white lockspur, only very much prettier, and was of course not a wild flower as she supposed, or at any rate not indigenous to this soil. 
She declared it had no leaves, but I made her go out and show me the plant. It grew about ten inches high, with leaves like a lily, and then came the pure, graceful flowers. To Mrs. Condict, Dorset, July ninth, 1876. There has been a great change here in religious interest, the foundation of which is thought to have been laid in the Bible readings. I am ashamed to believe it. All I say and do seems so flat, but our Lord can overrule incompetence. The ladies are eager to have their readings resumed, but I cannot undertake it unless I get stronger. The Reverend Mr. and Mrs. Reed are doing a quiet work among non-churchgoers at the other end of the village. She has been to every house in the neighborhood and compelled them to come in, having meetings at her own house. Of course, the devil is on hand. He reminds me of a slug that sits on my rose bushes watching for the buds to open when he falls to and devours them instanter. I am sure it is as true of him as of the Almighty that he never slumbers or sleeps. His impertinences increase daily. One of the last things I did before leaving home was to decide to bring here one of the Hippodrome converts, about whom I presume I wrote you. We knew next to nothing about him, and I could ill afford to support him, but I was his only earthly friend. He had no home, no work, and I felt I ought to look after him. We gave him a little room in the old mill, and he is perfectly happy calls his room his castle, does not feel the heat, takes care of my garden, enjoys haying, has put everything in order, is as strong as a horse, and a comfort to us all, being willing to turn his hand to anything. In the evenings he has made for me a manila mat of which I am very proud. He has been all over the world and picked up all sorts of information. He went to hear Mr. Prentice's centennial address on the 4th at a picnic, and I was astonished when he came back at his intelligent account of it. Everybody likes him, and he has proved a regular institution. I would not have had a flower but for him, for I cannot work out in such a blazing sun as we have had. My book is to be called, I believe, The Home at Greylock, but I don't know. My husband and Mr. Randolph fussed so over the title that I said it would, in the end, be called Much Ado About Nothing. They, being men, look at the financial question, to which I never gave a thought. Even Satan has never so much as whispered, right, to make money, don't be too religious in your books. Still, he may do it, now I have put it into his head. How little any of us know what he won't make us do. I enjoyed the centennial more than I expected to do, but got my fill very soon and was glad to go home. No account of the Dorset home would be complete without some reference to the old mill. It had been dismantled during the war, but at the request of the neighbors was now restored to its original use. It also contained the boys' workshop, a bathing room, an ice house, a ram, and a bowling alley, formed indeed together with the pond and the boat, part and parcel of the Dorset home itself. To Mrs. James Donaghy, Dorset, July fifteenth, 1876. I have hardly put pen to paper since I came here. I never could endure heat. It always laid me flat. Yesterday there was a let-up to the torrid zone, and today it is comparatively cool. Yesterday the mother of our pastor here got her release. I cried for joy, for she has been a great sufferer and had longed to die. What a mystery death is. I went in to see how she was, and she had just breathed her last, and there lay her poor old body, eighty-two years old, looking as rent and torn as one might suppose it would after a fight of thirty years between the soul and itself. I have wondered if the heat, so dreadful to many, had not been good for you. A rheumatic boy who works for us off and on says it has been splendid for him. 
We heard yesterday that Dr. Schaff had lost his eldest daughter after a ten days illness with typhoid fever. He has been so greatly afflicted again and again and again by such bereavements, but this must be hardest of all. There is a different religious atmosphere here now from anything we have ever known. The ladies hoped to begin the Bible readings right off, but it was out of the question. I expect such a number of guests this week that I dare not undertake it. I wish you were coming, too. How you would enjoy sitting on the piazza, watching the shadows on the mountains. We have had some magnificent sunsets this season. Mr. Prentice and I drive every night after tea, a regular old Darby and Joan. Generally, I prefer working in the garden to driving, but this time it has been too hot, and we have next to no flowers. It quite grieves me that I have nothing to lay on Grandma Pratt's coffin. However, she won't care. Won't it be nice to get rid of these frail, troublesome bodies of ours, and to live without them? I hope I shall see you in heaven with plenty of room and no rheumatism. How could you make such a time over that doggerel? Such things are a drug in this house. I thought I had a long letter from you, and it was that stuff. My last book is all printed. My husband kindly corrected the proof sheets for me, a thing I hate to do. He likes the book better than I do. I always get tired of my books by the time they are done. I read very little, only some few devotional books over and over. I wonder if you have read Miracles of Faith. It is a remarkable little book. Do write and let me know how you and your husband are. We make great account of our afternoon mail. She alludes in the preceding letter to the guests she was expecting. The entertainment of friends formed a marked feature of her Dorset's life, and it called into play the brightest traits of her character. Her visitors always went away, feeling like one who has been gazing upon a beautiful landscape or listening to sweet music. So charming was her hospitality. One of them, writing to her husband a year after her death, thus refers to it. I seem to see the Dorset Hills now with their beautiful cloud shadows and lovely blue. I can see in my mind your pleasant home and all the faces, including the dear one you miss this summer. What a delightful home she made. The good cheer she furnished for the minds, hearts, and bodies of her guests was something remarkable. I shall never forget my visits. I was in a state of high entertainment from beginning to end. What entertaining stories she told. What practical wisdom she gave out in the most natural and incidental way. And what housekeeping. Common articles of food seemed to possess new virtues and zest. I always went away full of the marvels of the visit, as well as loaded down with many little tokens of her kindness and thoughtfulness. To Mrs. Condict, Dorset, September 9, 1876. What interested me most at the centennial was in the main building, and two things stand out prominently in my memory. The first is groups of Swedish figures dressed in national costume, and all done by the hand of a real artist especially examine the dead baby and its weeping mother, and the rugged old wounded grandfather. It will remind you of the words, A little child shall lead them. Next in interest to me were the Japanese bronzes and screens. Next, wares from Denmark, butterflies and feathers from Brazil. In the art department, a picture called Betty in the British division, up in a corner, and in statuary, the forced prayer. Both my girls agreed with me in the main. The boys cared most for Machinery Hall, and my husband for Queensland, for which I did not care a fig. Last Sunday was as perfect here as with you. My husband preached at Paulet, about six miles from here, and I went with him. He preached a very earnest sermon on prayer. My Bible reading is thronged, and I can't but hope the Holy Spirit is helping my infirmities and blessing souls. My heart yearns over these women, many of whom have faces stamped with care. 
There is a class here that nobody has any idea how to get at. To meet their case, apostolic work needs to be done. Do you know that Irishmen are buying up the New England farms at a great rate? To Mrs. Donaghy, Dorset, September 10, 1876. The extraordinary heat has worked unfavorably on both my husband and myself. He has been under medical treatment most of the time, forlorn and depressed. I've just pushed through as I could, my Bible reading, which has been wonderfully attended, being the only work I have done. The weather is cool now, and I feel stronger. A party of young people who were coming to call on A were upset just above us. Two had broken legs, others bruises and cuts, and one had both knee pans seriously injured. We got her here and put her to bed, and then I started off to get the rest. But the surgeon, on arriving, decided they should be removed at once, and got them all safely back to Manchester. To Mrs. Condict, New York, October 16, 1876. Since my last letter, I have been to Montreal, fled from, and settled down here. My book is out in England, and my husband sat up till midnight, reading an English copy of it, although he had heard me read it aloud when written, and read it twice in proof sheets. He thinks it will be a useful book. I feel sure you will agree with me in its main points. God grant it may send many a bewildered mother to her knees. Miss S. called here a few days ago. She has written a book called The Fullness of the Blessing, one object of which is to prove that sanctification is not, cannot be instantaneous. I do hope the book will do good. It seems timely to me, for I shudder when I hear that A and B professed sanctification on such and such a day. My visit to Montreal gave me indignant pain when I saw crowds kneeling to the Virgin and not to Christ in those costly churches and cathedrals. As to Miss Blank, I do not know enough of her to form an opinion of her state. I incline, however, to think that demoniac possession is sometimes permitted. Fenelon, you know, thinks we should not be too eager for spiritual delight. He is entirely right when he says that the knight of faith may witness a faith dearer to God than that of sensible delight. I love Job when he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him more than I do David when he is in green pastures and beside still waters. It does not require much faith to be happy there. November 12th. I am glad Greylock reached you in safety, and sorry I could not correct its numerous misprints. Your question about Kitty I don't quite understand. I did not mean to say that her parents had no more trouble with her, but they had no more fights growing out of self-will on both sides. I know that there is no end to trouble with obstinate or otherwise naughty children, only if the mother lives close to Christ, the fault will be on their side, not hers. You speak, by the by, of my using the word Christ rather than the word Jesus. I do so because it means more to my mind, and because the apostles use it much more frequently. I do hope my book will be a comfort and help to many well-meaning but inexperienced mothers. And I wish I practiced more perfectly what I preach. But I have my infirmities and find it hard to be always on my guard. A and I are taking drawing lessons of a very superior French teacher who offers us the privilege of spending our whole time in her studio with Conciel. The Home at Greylock was published the latter part of October. It embodied, as she said, the results of 30 years of experience and reflection. Its views of marriage and of the office of a Christian mother found frequent expression in her other writings and in her correspondence. She placed religion and love alike at the foundation of a true home the one to connect it with heaven above, the other to make it a heaven upon earth. She enjoined it upon her young friends, as they desired enduring domestic felicity, to marry, first of all, for love. 
To one of them who was tempted as she feared to marry out of gratitude rather than from love, she wrote, We women are exacting creatures, and you cannot please us unless we have the whole of you. Oh, if you knew the sacredness, the beauty, the sweetness of married life as I do, you would as soon think of entering heaven without a wedding garment as of venturing on its outskirts even, save by the force of a passionate, overwhelming power that is stronger than death itself. How warmly she sympathized with mothers, especially with young mothers, in their peculiar experiences and how great she thought their privilege to be. Her writings testify. The same trait is brought out still more fully in her letters. Only a mother, she wrote, knows the varied discipline of hopes and fears and joys and sorrows through which a mother passes to glory. For this is the mother's pathway, and she rarely walks on a higher road, or one that may so lead to perfection. Some of her letters addressed to bereaved mothers have already been given, but if her heart was always touched with grief by the death of an infant, it seemed to leap for joy whenever she heard that in the home of a friend a child was coming or had just arrived. Here are samples of her letters on such occasions. To Mrs. Blank, January 10, 1874. You little know into what a new world you are going to be introduced. I wouldn't be a bit frightened if I were you. It is ever so much more likely that you'll get through safely than that you will not. And then what joy. You will be a very loving, devoted mother, and I hope this little one will only be the beginning of a houseful. I spoke for ten, but only had six, and our dear Lord had to take two of them back. I have just run over your letter again and want to reiterate my charge to you to feel no fear about your future. If you live and have a child, your joy will be wonderful. But if you do not live here, it will be because you are going to dwell with Christ, which is better than having a thousand children. So I see nothing but bright sides for you. To the same, April 18, 10, 1874. By this time, you ought to be able to receive letters. At any rate, I am going to write one, and you can do as you please about reading it. Well, isn't a baby an institution? I am sure you had no idea what a delightful thing it is to be a mother, and that you have had a most bewildering experience of both suffering and joy. I shall want to hear all about the young gentleman when you get strong enough to write an enthusiastic letter about him. Nor have I any objection to hear how his mother is behaving under these new circumstances. What does your husband think of the upsetting of all home customs and the introduction of this young hero therein? Thank him for sending me the news in good season. I should not have liked it from a stranger. And, by the by, don't let your children say parper and marmer, as nine children out of ten do. I dare say you never meant they should, having a little mite of sense of your own. Now this is all a new mother ought to read at once, so with lots of congratulations and thanksgivings, goodbye. The following is an extract from a letter to another friend, dated February 20th, 1875. Your last letter was so eloquent in its happiness that in writing an article for a magazine on the subject of education, I could not help beginning, The King is Coming, and depicting his heralds. I am indeed rejoicing in your joy, and hope the little queen will long sit on the right royal throne of your heart. Keep me posted as to Miss Baby's progress. I know a family where the first son was called Boy for years the servants addressing him as Master Boy. Here are the opening sentences of the article referred to. The king is at hand. Heralds have been announcing his advent in language incomprehensible to man, but which woman understands as she does her alphabet. A dainty basket filled with mysteries half hidden, half displayed. Soft little garments folded away in ranks and files. 
here delicate lace and cambric, there down and feathers and luxury. The king has come, limp and pink, a nothing and nobody, yet welcomed and treasured as everything and everybody, his wondrous reign begins. His kingdom is the world. His world is peopled by two human beings. Yesterday they were a boy and a girl. Today they are man and woman, and are called father and mother. Their new king is imperious. He has his own views as to the way he shall live and move and have his being. He has his own royal table, at which he presides in royal pomp. His waiting maid is refined and educated, his superior in every way. He takes his meals from her when he sees fit. If he cannot sleep, he will not allow her to do so. His treasurer is a man whom thousands look up to and reverence, but in this little world he is valued only for the supplies he furnishes, the equipages he purchases, the castle in which young royalty dwells. The picture is not unpleasing, however. The slaves have the best of it, after all. The reign is not very long. Two years later there is a descent from the throne to make room for the queen. She is a great study to him. He puts his fingers into her eyes to learn if they are little blue lakelets. He grows chivalrous and patronizing. So the world of home goes on. The king and queen give place to new kings and queens, but though dethroned, they are still royal. Their wants are forestalled. They are fed, clothed, instructed, but above all, beloved. When did their education begin? At six months? A year? Two years? No, it began when they began the moment they entered the little world they called theirs. Every touch of the mother's hand, every tone of her voice educates her child. It never remembers a time when she was not its devoted lover, servant, vassal, slave. Many an ear enjoys, is soothed by music, while ignorant of its laws. So the youngest child in the household is lulled by uncomprehended harmonies from its very birth. Affections group round and bless it like so many angels. It could not analyze or comprehend an angel, but it could feel the soft shelter of his wings. The following was addressed to a friend whose home was already blessed with six fine boys. Dorset, September 16th, 1868. Dear Mr. B, I am just as glad as I can be. I said it was a girl, and I knew it was a girl, and that is the reason it is a girl. Give my best love to Mrs. B and tell her I hope this little damsel will be to her like a Sabbath of rest. After the six-week and work days she has had all along. It is hard to tell which one loves best, one's girls or one's boys, but it is pleasant to have both kinds. I hope your place has an appropriate name as ours has given to it, Saints Rest, and that you will fill it full of saints and angels. Only let them be girls. You have had boys enough. End of chapter 14, part 2.